Look at verse 37. Keep in mind, this is the culmination of three years of of public ministry that Jesus has done on the earth. Verse 37, John writes, Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Humanly speaking, what an awful conclusion that is to Jesus' earthly public ministry. He He has done so many signs before these people and, and they still do not believe in Him. This summary given here at the end of this first half of John is certainly parallel with what John opened his Gospel with in the prologue. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where he writes, speaking of the Word made flesh, Jesus, He came in the world, or He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. So what John introduced us to back in chapter 1, we see comes to fruition at the end of chapter 12. He came into the world, the world did not know Him. The world rejected Him. He came to His own. His own people did not receive Him. He did so many signs before them, and they did not believe in Him. So here's the question for us to ponder. In light of this assessment that John gives of Jesus' ministry, how could Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God, God incarnate, who is the greatest preacher this world has ever seen, the greatest evangelist that's ever walked the earth. How could this man experience such rejection and unbelief? I mean, if we were going to assess Jesus' ministry according to our human standards, of how, how, how would you assess this preacher? How would you assess this evangelist? If these were the results, it would be a dismal failure. And so I've titled this sermon, The Failure of Jesus' Ministry. Because in one respect, it was a failure. And yet, as we will see, the failure of Jesus' ministry actually led to its greatest victory and success. And there's hope here. But before we get to to that, I want us to look at how John lays out for us the explanation for the unbelief that Jesus faced. The explanation of, of the unbelief. And the reality that the nation of Israel, by and large, rejected Jesus, they did not believe in Him, is explained by John through his reference back to two passages in, in the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. And the fact that John goes back to Old Testament prophecy to explain the unbelief of the people of Israel is evidence that God was not surprised at the results of Jesus' ministry. So while we say Jesus' ministry was, humanly speaking, a failure, or could be, could be chalked up as a failure, from God's perspective, God was not surprised that this is how His ministry turned out. Evidenced by these prophecies that he gives in the book of Isaiah. So let's look first at verse 38, John chapter, chapter 12. 
I'll go back, I'll read verse 37 as it leads into 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John's use of a reference back to this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 53 to be exact, shows us that unbelief is a common response to God's revelation. Unbelief is a common response to God's re- revelation. And so while, while we can look, and perhaps we would be surprised to think about Jesus having this sort of results from His preaching and teaching ministry, we know from Isaiah's example that unbelief is actually a common response to God's revelation. Isaiah's full prophecy there in Isaiah 53, if we go back to the last part of Isaiah 52, it's the prophecy of the suffering servant. Prophecy we're very familiar with. Describing that suffering servant as one who would be oppressed, marred beyond recognition, pierced for the transgressions of sinners, slaughtered and crushed according to the will of the Lord. That's, that's the context. That, that's Isaiah's prophecy that he's giving in Isaiah 53. And it's in the middle of that, the beginning of, of chapter 53 of Isaiah, that he makes that statement, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah's question then is, is answered in the negative. No one has believed what he heard. From Isaiah. And it appears that to no one has the arm of the Lord been, reve- been revealed. And this was certainly true in Isaiah's day. We'll, we'll see that in the second prophecy. But I think Isaiah, under inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, was, was not only speaking of his own day and those that were not believing the, the word that he had, but he was speaking of a day in the future, a day fulfilled in John chapter 12, where this suffering servant would come. And as he explained the course that he was, he was going to take, that he, he was a, a Messiah who was, who was going to die, who was going to suffer, many did not believe. Many rejected that notion of, of a Messiah. And so Isaiah was speaking not only of his own day and those who rejected the truth, but prophesied of a day where the coming of that suffering servant would be rejected. And where the arm of the Lord in salvation would be extended through the the sending of God the Son into into the world to bring salvation for sinners. And yet those to whom that arm of the Lord was revealed rejected that salvation. The unmistakable reality that we observe from Isaiah's testimony, his own testimony of of his own day and his prophecy of, of coming days, is that whenever God's word is proclaimed, whenever the truth of God's revelation is proclaimed, there will be many who reject it. Jesus was facing opposition 
Not because he wasn't popular. He was popular. He did all sorts of great things that people loved. They couldn't deny the works that he was doing. They, they couldn't deny the signs. Never in John's gospel do we see people questioning whether or not Jesus actually did these things, whether or not he actually healed the blind man. In fact, we, we read it was unmistakable that he healed the blind man. It became a point of contention throughout those chapters. Nobody disputed the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. That wasn't in question. So it wasn't that Jesus faced opposition because he was unpopular. Rather, it was because being the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53 of a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah, not in their minds a victorious Messiah, they refused to believe. There are many reasons why this is true, that unbelief is a common response to God's revelation. Many people refuse to receive the Word of God as the truth that it is because of their own lack of recognition of their own sinfulness. That was certainly the case of these first century Jewish people that rejected Jesus here. They didn't understand that they needed a Messiah who would come and be pierced for their transgressions. They didn't see their need in those terms. They were unwilling to accept the means by which God was going to bring them salvation. They they didn't understand the depth of their need. Therefore, they didn't understand the means that God sent to, to meet that need. And there are countless other reasons that that people can give for rejecting the truth of the Word of God. But John's point here, Isaiah's point in his prophecy, John's use of that portion of his prophecy is to to show us that unbelief is not a surprising response to God's revelation. Rather, unbelief is an all-too-common response. In fact, the prophecy given by Isaiah in Isaiah 53 is really the fulfillment of what happens when those who hear God's revelation reject it. It's the result of of those who rebel against God in, in disobedience and sin. It's because of sin that the suffering servant had to come and, and die in the way that he did and, and bring salvation in the, in the way that he did. So unbelief is a common response to God's revelation. It didn't take God by surprise that Jesus was rejected the way that he was. And it shouldn't surprise us. And even by extension, it shouldn't surprise us when we proclaim the truth of God's word. That we meet with unbelief. That shouldn't take us by surprise. Yes, we should absolutely believe in the power of God's word. We should believe in the truth of God's Word. And we should confidently proclaim it as it is the truth, expecting God to work, because He will. But we should also not be discouraged with the perceived lack of of response or lack of belief by those who who hear our message of of truth. We share the Gospel with somebody and they, they refuse to believe. 
We must be faithful to proclaim the truth of God's word and allow God to to do his work in their heart. And that leads us to the, the second consideration as we seek to explain the unbelief or really just see how John explains the, the unbelief of the people. Not only does he show us that unbelief is a common response, going all the way back to Isaiah, but in light of that response, God eventually hardens those who persist in unbelief. God eventually hardens those who persist in unbelief. The second reference to Isaiah's prophecy is to a passage from Isaiah 6. It reveals the divine hand behind the unbelief of, of Israel in Jesus' day. Look at verse 39. Therefore, so to, to back up to see what that is connected to, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah is fulfilled. People have not believed what they heard from Jesus. They've not received the, the arm of the Lord in salvation. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah recorded these words when he saw that vision in Isaiah 6 of, as John tells us, it was Jesus. That's what he means in, in verse 41, that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus sitting on his throne. That heavenly scene where the, the angels are, are covering their face. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. And Isaiah sees that vision and is struck by his own sinfulness. And he's cleansed by God of his, of his sinfulness in light of the holiness of God. And as a result of that, Isaiah volunteers to go with the message of, of God to his people. And God's words to Isaiah in Isaiah 6 the words that he was to take to the people of Israel are, a portion of that is, is what John records here in chapter 12. God promised that Isaiah's prophetic ministry would be, would be faced with the response of blind eyes, hard hearts, so that they would not see, they would not understand, they would not believe. And this is certainly a, a sobering reality to, to think about God blinding the eyes of sinners so that they cannot see, blind, hardening their hearts so that they will not believe, they will not understand. And while I think it is certainly appropriate to I wouldn't want to take away from God His right and authority to blind the hearts of, of sinners. I think it's important for us to, to understand the way that John presents this. He presents it in a way, in an order that God is, is blinding those that have already refused to believe. 
that's important for us to understand theologically. That God, yes, God does blind people's eyes and He blinds and He hardens hearts. But those hearts that that He's hardening, those eyes that He's blinding are not eyes and hearts that are inclined to the truth. They're not inclined to believe and He's shutting them out. Rather, those hearts are already hard. Those eyes are already blind. And, And for those that persist in unbelief, God does a work of hardening. Scripture is, is clear that, that God, as, as sovereign over the hearts of, of men and women, will at times harden those who refuse to believe. And so there is a grave danger of continuing to reject the salvation provided in the gospel. There is a grave danger. There is a temptation for, for many to, to delay. Perhaps some consider salvation from God to be something that, that I'll, you know, I'll wait till I grow up. I'll wait till I'm an adult to take care of that. I want to enjoy my childhood. I want to, I want to grow up. And then when I'm ready to settle down, then I'll, I'll do the church thing. I'll, I'll follow God. I'll... I'll trust Jesus at that time. Or others would rather have control over their lives, making their own decisions, and and their desire is, you know, I'll wait till the end of my life. I want to live my life, I want to enjoy my life, but then I'll wait till the end of my life to, to submit my heart to Him. But the fact that God blinds hearts or blinds eyes and hardens hearts reveals to us a grave danger in putting off submission to the truth of the gospel. There is a danger in in delaying that. Today is the day of salvation. My plea is that for anyone here who is continuing to reject the truth of the gospel, do not put it off another day. Trust God's arm of salvation that has been revealed today. Because there might come a day where you will will not be able to respond in faith. God will harden your heart so that you will not be able to respond. Do not put it off. Respond to God's provision of salvation in Christ. But in light of Israel's unbelief that was prophesied by God through Isaiah, there are two important results of Israel's unbelief. And so this is where we, we see that, humanly speaking, this, this rejection by the people constituted a failure of Jesus' ministry. And yet, at the same time, this failure of Jesus' ministry actually serves to accomplish its greatest victory and success. Because I want, us to, I want to remind us of God's grace in Israel's unbelief. Here's how. First, Israel's unbelief in just a matter of chapters leads directly to the crucifixion of Jesus. It's because 
Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah, that they kill him. And so it's, because, it's through the unbelief of Israel that God brings about the greatest work of Jesus' ministry, which was his work on the cross. Greater than any of the signs that he did, greater than healing the sick, greater than raising Lazarus from the dead, was giving his life as that good shepherd that he talked about in chapter 10. Giving his life and then raising it back up again. Testifying that, that he was the true Messiah. Israel rejected him because he did not fit their understanding and expectation of what the Messiah was going to be and do. And through their rejection of him, through their unbelief, God brought about the greatest work of the Messiah, his death on the cross. So according to God's plan, it was through their unbelief that the means of our salvation has come. And secondly, because of Israel's unbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Most, if not all of us, would fall in that category today. We're Gentiles. We're not ethnic Jewish people. And it's through the the unbelief of Israel that God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. Remember back to Jesus' teaching in chapter 10? He's revealing himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You remember what he said in verse 16? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus speaking of, of others who would come into the flock. Then think about Romans 11. Paul's writing, dealing with the, the unbelief of Israel and why all of this happened the way it happened. He asks in Romans 11:11, 11, 11, did they stumble, that is Israel, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And so there is great hope. And there is a picture of God's grace as we observe the rejection of Jesus by the people of Israel. This is the means by which Jesus went to the cross. And it's the means by which salvation has been brought to us. And so it's through the unbelief of the people of Israel, that the advancement of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth continues. Moving on, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, so The nation, by and large, did not believe in in Jesus. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man 
more than the glory that comes from God. I want to draw out of this for us as, we, as we've looked at trying to understand the, the unbelief of the people of Israel. And here we have this record but by John that there were some of the authorities that believed in Jesus. So, so he contrasts these authorities with those that have not believed the signs that they've seen Jesus do. That they've not believed in Him even though they've seen the signs. And here John contrasts that with many of the authorities who believe in Him. They were afraid of aligning with Jesus publicly because doing so would cause them to lose their status in the synagogue. And their status among those that they ruled over and had influence with. And it's difficult to determine whether or not this is a portrayal of genuine faith here. I've kind of struggled with, you know, are these people genuinely believing in Jesus? Because then it goes on to appear that they don't. Because their, their reason for not publicly confessing Jesus before everyone else is that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that certainly doesn't sound like somebody that's a true believer. And yet John contrasts them with those that do not believe. And so what is it? Are these genuine believers or are they not? And I'll just say this. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm not convinced. But I will say this, that while it is contrasted with the unbelief, of the many, it definitely falls short of what true faith ought to look like. And so at the very least, it's a weak faith that needs to be strengthened. And possibly it's a false faith altogether that does not rest solely on Jesus. Either way, I think there's an important warning for us to draw out and consider. There is a danger for all of us, just as there was for these authorities. There is a danger for us to hold back our allegiance to Christ because we are self-centered rather than God-centered. We boil it all down. That's, that's what's going on in the hearts of these authorities. They are, they are self-centered rather than God-centered. They, they are more interested in the affirmation of men, the praise of men, the glory that comes from man more than they are the affirmation, the praise, and the glory that comes from God. They're self-centered rather than God-centered. And so whether, whether or not they are people who reject Jesus because they, they like what He's teaching, but ultimately He's not really worth the cost, or if they're just weak and they're like us, prone to self-centeredness. Either way, we know that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness certainly keeps people from coming to faith in Christ. But it also stunts spiritual growth for those of us that are Christians. So either way, there is, there is application. When we are consumed with Pursuing selfish interests 
we lose sight of the glory of God. The glory that we are, we have been made to look at. Just as Isaiah looked at the glory of the Lord. We have been made to see that glory. We have been made to reflect that glory to those that are watching. And when we are consumed with selfish interests, we lose sight of that glory. We fail to reflect that glory the way that we ought to. There is hope here, though, which is why I think this description perhaps is a bit ambiguous. All true believers wrestle with this sort of attitude, right? All true believers wrestle with loving the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, struggle with that. But it's by continuing to be brought before the glory of God. Continuing to see the glory of God. That we are able to abandon selfish ambitions. Put off our self-centeredness for the glory of God. How can we diagnose if we're pursuing selfish ambitions? How can we tell if, if this is me? Let me ask a couple questions. As we serve the Lord, we serve the Lord in, in a number of ways as we serve His church. Does it bother you that no one knows the service that you're doing for God and for His church? If you're doing some service for the Lord, does it bother you that nobody knows about it? If it does, that perhaps could be because you are more interested in people knowing about what you're doing rather than just serving the Lord. Performers of of all different types routinely say that when they are performing, the, the energy of the crowd gives them energy to, to continue doing the performance they're doing, whether they're singing or acting or playing a sport, whatever it is. The energy of those that are watching them gives them more adrenaline and ability to, to perform better. Is that the motivation and the energy that we get for our service to the church and to God, is it because others are watching us? We're able to feed off the fact that people are seeing me do the things that I'm doing. Or do we gain our energy from the audience of one who is watching us, who alone ought to be our the, the, the one that we are performing for, performing to, seeking His approval. To put off selfish ambitions. Put away the glory that comes from man. Pursue the glory that comes from God. So that helps us understand a little bit about the, the unbelief, the nature of the unbelief that Jesus faced. Why so many people rejected Him. the rest of the chapter, I want us to see Jesus' call to believe. So as I said, 
I believe verse 36 really ends the, the public ministry of Jesus. I think that the way John lays it out, he, he teaches, he goes away, he is hidden. And these words that John records in verses 44 to 50 are really not necessarily a something that Jesus says at this point in the narrative, but rather this is John summarizing the teachings that Jesus has, has taught in his ministry. He makes no attempt to give any sort of context to this statement. I mean, the only context we have of Jesus is that he's hidden. So if he's hidden, who is he saying these things to? I, I think that these are summary statements summarizing the teachings of Jesus and his call to believe in light even of the virtual wholesale rejection of, of those who have seen his ministry and heard his teaching and have not believed. Jesus cries out again with a call to believe. I just want to point out, make four observations about believing in Jesus from the, these statements that Jesus makes here, or that John records of, of Jesus. First, I want us to see that believing in Jesus equates to believing in God. Look at verses 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. With this statement, Jesus reaffirms something that he has said repeatedly in this gospel. If you've been with us throughout this study, you will recognize this language that Jesus makes. of Referencing his father. I've come from my Father. You see me. You, you see my Father. The things I'm saying to you, they're not, they're not my words. They're the Father's words. That sort of language has been routine in Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' point by saying this is, how you deal with me, how you respond to me, is how you respond to God, the Father. In other words, you can't say that you believe in God without also believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus equates himself with God. John in his, in his gospel is equating Jesus with God. He's the Son of God. So to reject Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, is to reject God. The two cannot be separated. This is what Peter and John, as they preach in Acts 4, they make the same argument. Acts 4, 11 and 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There are many who claim to know and worship God but are not trusting in Jesus as the means of their salvation. One cannot truly know and truly worship God without also receiving the salvation that comes through Christ. A right relationship with God only comes through the access provided by the work of Jesus as He opens the way to God. 
through his mediating work on the cross. It's the only means by which we have a relationship with God. It's the only means by which we can truly worship God is having been cleansed by the work that Christ has done for us. In our adult Bible study, in the, the hour before this service, we've, we've seen in the early books of the Old Testament, they're all about seeing the holiness of God, the fact that sinful man cannot dwell in the presence of holy God. So in order to truly know God and truly worship God is to know Jesus as our Savior. One cannot come to know God and have a relationship with God through any other means apart from Jesus. And so if your hope of salvation rests in something less or something other than Jesus and His work as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, if your salvation rests in anything else other than that, then it is no salvation at all. Because the only way that we have Access to God is through Jesus. Secondly, believing in Jesus brings freedom from darkness. Verse 46. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The purpose of Jesus coming. And this, this, is, this is really what This is where the disconnect was between Jesus' teaching and those who heard. The purpose for which Jesus came into the world was the transformation of the lives of those who believe in Him. This is radically different from the expectations of the masses that were looking to Him for relief from enemy occupation. And Jesus came and said, He was here to transform those that were walking in darkness and and bring them into the light. So the true test of determining if someone believes in Jesus in a saving way is whether or not that person is walking in the light or continuing to walk in darkness. John, in his first epistle, 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7. He writes this, if, I, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, this, that is fellowship with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. One cannot have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. Jesus came to provide the means by which we could be moved out of darkness and into the light to have fellowship with God. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So are you a believer? Are you a believer in Jesus? How do, we, how do we know? How do I know if I am a believer in Jesus? One of the ways by which we can answer that question is to consider, are we grieved by our sin because it is a vestige of the darkness that characterized our former life? And when we walk in darkness, we are grieved by it. We are convicted by the the Spirit because of it. 
Are we continually coming to the light of God to be cleansed, as, as John says in 1 John, to be cleansed of our sin? Those who, are, who do not know Christ as their Savior love the darkness. Prefer to live in the darkness. Those who are truly sons of God in Christ are people that put off the works of darkness who want to walk in the light of God's Word, having sin exposed so that we might be cleansed. Believing in Jesus brings freedom from darkness through the light of His work and His Word. The third observation about believing in Jesus is this. Believing in Jesus brings salvation from the final judgment. Those who believe in Jesus are saved from the final judgment. Look at verse 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus does a couple things here. One, he notes that the purpose of His coming into the world in, in this time was not to judge, but to bring salvation. There is a time in the future that Jesus will come again and judge those who do not believe and obey His Word. But this coming, this was the arm of the Lord being revealed in salvation. He came to provide salvation through His death. But He will one day come in judgment on those that do not believe and do not obey His words. And he also clarifies that to believe in Jesus is to obey His words. He connects again. Again, if you've been with us through this study, you'll recognize this connection. He connects believing in Him and obeying the words that He is teaching. Believing Himself as the revealed Word of God. So again, how do we know if we are a true believer in Jesus? We will walk in light rather than darkness. Another question we can ask is, do we obey God's Word? As we receive God's Word through that which He's revealed to us, do we obey it? Or are we like the man James describes who comes to the Word of God and, and, and sees himself in it and just walks away and, and doesn't change a thing, forgetting the kind of man he was. A true believer in Jesus will obey that which Jesus has, has revealed, will, will obey the, the things that God has revealed to us. We won't do that perfectly. Again, that's why John gives us great hope in his epistle that when we, when we sin, when we trespass, there's forgiveness. We confess and, and forsake our sin and there's forgiveness found through the work of Jesus. True believers obey God's Word. And the fourth observation, believing in Jesus through obedience brings eternal life. 
further confirming that to believe in Jesus is to obey his words. We see this final statement in verses 49 and 50 by Jesus regarding the commandment that he received from his father. Look at verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What is this commandment that Jesus has received that is eternal life? What is a commandment that brings eternal life? Help us think about that. We often think of the call to faith and repentance as, as an invitation. I invite you to respond in faith and repentance to the work of Jesus. But the Bible also presents the call to faith and repentance as a command. Paul, in Acts 17, as he's preaching there, says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. So God's command to all people is to repent. And by repenting, we will have eternal life through Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example of one who perfectly obeys and did obey the commands of His Father. Again, we see here at the the very end of this chapter, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Again, that is familiar language in John's Gospel. Jesus has consistently done the things that His Father commanded Him to do. He's accomplished the things that His Father sent Him on earth to accomplish. He is the ultimate example of obedience to the commands of of God the Father. And it's through His obedience in our place that we're able to likewise obey. Because Jesus obeyed that we are able to obey. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And we will see, even in the way John transitions his gospel, beginning next week to to really ministering exclusively to His disciples and teaching them. We'll see in coming weeks the promise that Jesus makes to His disciples and to us as disciples down the line regarding the ministry of the Spirit who comes and empowers the obedience of all true believers. So it's through the unbelief of the people that, that God brings salvation through, through their rejection. They kill the Messiah according to God's plan to bring salvation for those that will come in faith and repentance, trusting in the work of Jesus. And then Jesus sends His Spirit to those that, that truly believe in, in His work of salvation. And that Spirit indwells us so that we have the ability to obey. We have the ability to put off selfish ambitions. We have the ability to walk in the light, to put off darkness. We have the ability to obey the things that God has called us to do. 
only by the power and work of the Holy Spirit in us. Father, it's because of that power that we have hope today. Because all of us have a propensity to disobedience and unbelief. We deserve to, all of us deserve to have our eyes blinded and have our hearts hardened. None of us deserve Your grace. And yet we are thankful that You have extended Your grace to us through Christ. I do pray that if there are some here today that that are continuing to reject You, I pray that Your Spirit would quicken their hearts today. They would not put off responding in faith another day. That today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day that You open their eyes to see the truth, to soften their hearts, to believe. I pray that You would do that work even in our midst today. Pray on behalf of those of us that that you have done that work in our hearts already. We are we are so thankful for that. But we recognize that we still need your grace. We still need the blood of Jesus to to cleanse us of our sins as we confess and forsake them. Because we still await the day that Jesus will come again to to judge sin and to raise us up to to live in His presence, having had our sin finally removed and the very presence of sin in us. So we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, we pray that Your Spirit would do His work in our, in our hearts, in our lives, giving us the ability to obey and respond in faith as He leads us. We pray these things because of Jesus, our Savior, and the work that He has done on our behalf. Amen.